verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Captains, you're listening to episode 191 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast, recorded Friday, September 19th, 2014, and available for download or streaming on Monday, September 22nd, 2014, at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Cookie. And I'm Elijah. What do we have in store this week, Elijah? Well, Captains, this week we trek out Enterprise in Space, a grassroots Earth orbiter, and science education project inspired by the works of visionary authors and creators like Gene Roddenberry. In Star Trek Online News, the new Delta Reputation system is live on Tribble, as well as access to most of the rewards. We'll be giving you our preliminary assessment. We also have two art-related blogs discussing the design of the new intelligence ships as well as the creation of the iconic Voyager Master Systems display. We also have a blog about Neelix's involvement in the Delta Quadrant the announcement of the super-secret ship in the Delta Operations Pack, and double XP until the launch of Delta Rising. Oh, and speaking of launch, they finally announced the date. And again, this week, Star Trek Online's lead designer, Al Captain Gecko Rivera, joins us for a discussion about the new item upgrade system and systems designer Phil Gorn-Gonzalez-Zaleski makes his debut priority one appearance to talk about the new systems coming to star trek online with delta rising later we'll open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming from you our listeners this is going to be a long episode captains so make some popcorn and don't forget that priority one podcast is more than just a podcast check out all our blogs at priority one podcast.com but captains before we move on with the show we have a massive announcement on october 8th Cookie, Jace, and I will be spending the weekend at Cryptic Studios and Perfect World Entertainment's offices in Northern California. That is right! We will be there to get the lowdown on Delta Rising and have plenty of news to share for weeks after Delta Rising. More information is to come in the next few weeks, so don't forget to follow us on our social media websites like facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast and on Twitter at STO Priority One. Well, Captains, let's boldly go into orbit with the NSS Enterprise and the team behind Enterprise in Space. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. Captains, this week we trek out Enterprise in Space, a grassroots Earth orbiter and science education project inspired by works of visionary authors and creators like Gene Roddenberry. Today, we're joined on Priority One Podcast by Sean Case, Enterprise and Space Program Manager and Founder, with Chief Development Officer and Chief Information Technology Officer, Johnny Steverson. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today here on Priority One. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, why don't we start with an introduction to the project? Tell us briefly its genesis and for instance how did the relationship with the national space society come to be so i started this project about four and a half years ago 
I was flicking the channels at the time, uh, flicking the TV channels, and uh, Star Trek The Next Generation came on, and I was thinking to myself, you know they flew Gene Roddenberry's ashes up into space after he passed away? And I started thinking to myself, there's never been a spacecraft Enterprise in orbit. So then I started thinking if that was technologically possible, and I couldn't think of any reason why it wouldn't be, and that was the initial idea. The ship itself, when I was young, when I first started, I'm 53, so I first started watching Star Trek when I, you know, when it first came out, and uh, Star Trek and landing on the moon got me interested in studying cosmology and astronomy for 40 years. So I find, find space and cosmology and astronomy extremely fascinating, and uh, Gene Roddenberry was instrumental in the thought of being able to fly around the galaxy and the universe in a starship. So, so that was the very, the the beginning of it um, and I kind of felt like a Wright brother at the time going you know this is this is gonna sound a little crazy to some of my friends as I start this up but over the course of four years uh, the first person I reached out to was Andrew Probert and then I started contacting some aeronautical schools and it developed from there and I had nothing but positive feedback as I kept moving forward and then started putting together a team and then connected with the National Space Society to make it a a nonprofit project. In the beginning, there was, you know, I got some feedback like uh, put a model up or put a inflatable up. And I thought to myself, if you're gonna go through this and do this, um, I didn't wanna do something kind of cheesy. You know, I, I really wanted it to make it a, a spacecraft that actually carried a, a science payload because that was very important to me, that it had an educational component, that it had not only the entertainment value, but it also had an educational component and, and would do some exploration and promote actual space activities. Back to the public. So that was the, that was the start of that. That, that's how it started. Well, that's very exciting. And it's amazing how Roddenberry's vision has touched the lives of so many people, from astronauts to, to scientists to podcasters. It's just it's phenomenal how much uh, Star Trek has, has shaped the lives of so many people. Correct. And second to our goal of education, you know, this was really created as a tribute to those many visionaries of both science and science fiction. The scientists that helped generate science fiction stories and the science fiction stories that helped generate you know, turn science fiction to science fact. Right, right, absolutely. Now, Johnny, why don't you introduce yourself to the community and, and your involvement with the project? Well, I got involved with Enterprise in Space through my connections through the Hollywood Science Fiction Museum and helping those guys develop their platform. I was approached by Sean Case with this amazing idea, and the more that I read into it, the more I fell in love with what they were doing. Um, and so when I, I completely absorbed everything that was there, I just threw all of my resources to those guys from WebTech Promotions to be able to help them out and make this make this goal accomplishable. And so we knocked that out, and here we are um, presenting this educational experience to the public now. And with a strong focus of education and tying into all of the visionaries, I really think that with the strong emphasis on science and education, this is, this is something that someone, not just you know, everyone could get behind. And when Sean reached out to me, I took it in, and this is just something I definitely wholeheartedly got behind. Now, how high is this craft supposed to go in space? So there is the Richard Branson uh, VSS Enterprise, and uh, that has done a suborbit. So it goes up, and I uh, don't want to say exactly, but somewhere in between 10 minutes in a, in a half an hour. 
but we wanted to put this in orbit and orbit it for a week, at least a week. So somewhere around the 150 mile to 200 mile range, one of the things we have to be extremely careful of is not hitting the space station or other satellites while we're up there. Yeah. <laughs> Keep in mind, Cookie, it'll be flying 17,500 miles per hour. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so a part of this is, you know, I, we couldn't build a full-scale enterprise and put her up in orbit. Um, so the next best thing was to fly people's names on the first enterprise in orbit, go into orbit, orbit for at least a week, and do our science experiments. Uh, we're looking at a bunch of really cool science experiments. And we have one of the top uh, space educators in the country, if not the world, two-time National Space Educator Award, the only woman in history, the only person in history to win that twice. Uh, just won the Alan Shepard Award for teaching technology and won the Presidential Award for teaching science. Touching on one of the things that Sean just said about, you know, the 100 plus student experiments we'll be taking up into space. One of the things that sets our projects aside in comparison to that other projects that have done things that taken student experiments up into space is that the students are not going to have to pay to take these projects up on our orbiter, as opposed to the students having to pay to put their things on into space with other projects. So that's a great thing. And then once all of the scientific experiments are complete and the orbiter comes down and we collect the orbiter, then we're going to be engaging in, um, you know, campaigning that orbiter around to museums like the Smithsonian after you know we get their approval process so that that brings it back all the way to the beginning with education and tying education through the process and even through the retrieval and touring process keeping education involved the entire way now what kind of experiments are these going to be can you tell us a little about that so there's uh passive experiments that don't use any power but the kind of experiments we're talking about we we have been looking at a bunch of very new technologies. There's even little small, probably less than half an inch, little mini satellites um, that are self-powered all the way up to things the size of ping pong balls, to test tubes, and then to what's called CubeSats. And uh, one of our board of advisors won the Richard Branson 2014 award for technology by developing a 3D printed CubeSat. So we're, we're looking at 3D printers and what they can do, but the experiments are everything from biological, that's not, uh, you can't fly vertebrae up, um, and we're all animal lovers, so um, so there's experiments that could be biological, uh, how, how bacteria or something might survive in space, to studying, say, the Van Allen belts, and part of that is doing the student competition, so the students come up with what kind of experiments they want to fly. Then we do a competition to pick those to fly in their importance. But there's a lot of high technology stuff we've been looking at, aerographite, these new lighter than air materials. So it's there's a lot of different stuff there to, to work on that would help new technologies and do experiments with new technologies that don't affect the actual ship itself. The ship itself you want to keep as simple as possible just for safety reasons. And Johnny touched on, you know, that the students don't have to pay because that's the normal course. They, they pay for their flight up. So everybody that's donating $20 gets their name flown up on the first enterprise, as well as helping to fund the student education and the student experiments. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about that. What does a project like this cost? And other than the current donation portal on the website, do you have plans for other crowdfunding options like Kickstarter? And then 
to even follow up a little further, how are you reaching out to educators for support? So the total cost of the project right now is $39 million. So we need, you know- Wait, 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 let me open up my checkbook right now. (laughs) (laughs) There there we go. So uh, while it's a very expensive project, we look at this like you get 2 million people for $20. And that's only if we fund it through individuals at the $20. It was important to me to have people do this, um, to have people be a part of this, instead of just having one corporation come in and give us a bunch of money and just do it that way, that I wanted the people involved. So while that sounds and is a lot of money, I thought to myself, hey, you know, this is like going to a movie. So there's two ways to look at it. One is, you know, the total cost of the 39 million, but the individual at $20 is like, uh, somebody goes to the movies and pays for popcorn. Um, They go to a movie and they have that experience, but in this case, they pay $20 and they have the entertainment value, they have the making history value, and they have the helping to fund student experiments. And as far as the Kickstarters are concerned, we're using a little bit different method at the moment to just get people's involvement and not start with a Kickstarter, but to kind of avoid that in the beginning here. You know, Kickstarters are great. They they do a lot for a lot of people, um, but this is, you know, I, I, I didn't want to start a Kickstarter project for $39 million. I wanted to reach out grassroots, tell people about the project, have them do the $20 donation, go for some corporate sponsorships on, on certain things. For example, uh, uh, this is a cool thing, we're, we're looking at the possibility of putting a window in the ship and putting some kind of pad in the window. And you would be able, we'd be able to stream cookies, cookie uh, waving up to the window of the ship oh and, then, and then stream that back to Earth. <laughs> That's so, like cool. I, so Cookie could Cookies. actually be waving from the window of of the NSS Enterprise orbiter um, from the ship back to Earth. You're like, hey, this is a great view, guys. Wish you were here. <laughs> yep. So, you know, we're trying to do as much as possible for virtual crew members to to be part of the project, you know, a, as we go as well. And one thing that also kind of steered us away from doing Kickstarter is because we really wanted to do as much as we could to involve the public, not only with the education, but just with the project in general. For example, one of the things that we're doing to really engage people, and really for the Star Trek fans, so for the Star Trek fans out there that are listening, we're doing a ship design contest. So you guys have the opportunity to submit your ship designs for voting, and that ship, the ship design that wins will actually be the design that we launch into space. Wow. So yeah, any ship designers listening, go to enterpriseinspace.org and and put your ship into the submission form. And uh, going back to the educators, Lynn has a has flown on six shuttle missions and some rockets and has a ton of experience and a ton of experience. This is an international competition for submitting your student science experiments. And two other people on our, on our education are involved in observatories and they can get the word out. We, we, we have a phenomenal education team. Now, of what other challenges do you face other than liftoff, which is in fact rocket science? Why leave it in the hands of the community to design and craft and not an engineer? That's a great question. Because if we just put it out into the engineer world, A, a because I wanted it to be uh, so public that a lot of people that design very cool ships, science fiction, inspired ships it would be just the general public and then we would take those images and work the engineering into them which is 
pretty technical. But that opened it up to more than just people that already are working as engineers for space companies to design ships. So let me ask you this. Are you accepting submissions from artists like Andrew Probert or Mark Rademacher? We're looking for people uh, people like Andrew and then just people like Mark. And even if a 10-year-old uh, came up with a really cool ship design that fits what we need for the mission, then that might be the one that gets picked. Uh, aesthetically, a science fiction designed orbiter. And yes, all of those roles are laid out in the ship design contest form and all the specifications and restrictions are all easily laid out for those guys who do want to sign up for the ship design contest. So the mission is scheduled to take off in 2019, correct? Uh, late 2018 to 2019, if everything goes smoothly, yes. So tell us uh, as much as you can about the schedule between now and then. What do you have in the next six months, the next year, and what's on the immediate horizon, and then of course the launch in in 2018 or 2019. So the initial launch here with the with the project is to, you know, do the ship design competition and then start raising the funding for the initial sending it to a conceptual design firm which would take the design concept and start working it up in computers for avionics, communications, heat shielding. Yeah, so in the upcoming months and the next couple of years while we're launching this product, stay tuned to our website, enterpriseinspace.org, where we will be doing a lot of live chat features hosted by Larry Nemechek. So you can engage with our team members, ask questions, and, and be more involved. And especially for those teachers and educators out there, for them to reach out to us to be involved with this project as well. And so in the meantime, we'll be doing live chats and also visit us at some of the conventions that we'll be at as well, which we'll be posting those spots on our website as, as well. So a really cool thing about this is in all of the aspects that it covers, science, technology, engineering, arts, math, the public, you know, we really want to promote how important moving into space really is. You know, the vision of Gene and future societies and the positiveness of humanity, people being more kind to each other. A big part of this project when I started was there was so much negativity going on in the world that it was important to me to try to pick some project that everybody could get on board with that was totally positive and bring that and, and reflect that positivity through the project. And it's a great project. I mean, I, I you know, when I received the notification about it, it certainly piqued my interest almost immediately. The idea of not only it being influenced by the vision of Gene Roddenberry and, and just general science fiction, but that it's also incorporating education, right? That it's reaching out, it's putting science back in the hands of the students, right? Because it's in, it's in their future right now and inspiring students and inspiring future scientists around the world, around the globe. So it's, it's, a, it's a great project. I'm really looking forward to it. Gentlemen, this is the, the, type, the part of the show where we open the mic to you if there's anything that we might not have covered that you'd like to uh, discuss and make sure that our community and our listeners know about please let us know well one thing i was just going to say in, re in your comment just now is you know the students and stuff that we want to get involved in the education part will be the next generation that goes to mars mm -hmm. um, that starts working these new technologies um, and in our frequently asked questions you know one of them was that we hope that you know, some of the students in that start working on this are the people that start, you know, working through NASA's already working on the uh, conceptual speculation of warp drive, but that these up and coming new 
engineers and, and science would start to generate new ways for um, being able to travel long distances in space. You know, what, what, once we get going, our capabilities are limitless. Well, gentlemen, why don't you remind our listeners, again, where they can follow, where they can read up on uh, Enterprise in Space, the website, any Facebook or Twitter accounts? Great. I would just like to say, um, join Buzz Aldrin, Nichelle Nichols, and many more in the groundbreaking endeavor by Enterprise in Space to fly the first NSS Enterprise Orbiter. You know, help support Enterprise in Space today by donating $20 to have your name flown in space on the first NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit Enterprise in Space org and go through the information we're you know looking for up-and-coming ship designers or people that have the same interests that that we do with the project and you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash enterprise and space and you can also find us on twitter at twitter.com slash enterprise sat awesome well gentlemen again thank you so very much for spending uh, your evening with us here at priority one podcast Uh, This is a fantastic project, and I'm looking forward uh, to the next, following it for the next several years uh, and seeing it launch off into space, into orbit. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yes, thank you for having us. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Well, let's get the big news out of the way. Delta Rising is scheduled to launch on October 14th. That's right, in just about four weeks, captains, or admirals, will venture into the Delta Quadrant and explore strange new worlds. And just a few days before that, we'll be recording interviews and getting answers to all the Delta Rising goodness uh, that you captains can sink your teeth into. Speaking of all the Delta goodness, Cookie, why don't you talk to us about the new Delta Alliance reputation system? When Voyager was stuck in the Delta Quadrant, the crew came in contact with new and unfamiliar equipment and technology. Since we will now be exploring the Delta Quadrant, that technology will now become available to us via the reputation system. Systems designer Mike McTire explains a little more about these items and abilities in a recent Starfleet operations report. These reputation items are designed to assist players as they explore in the Delta Quadrant. This is going to work the same way as any other reputation project that you're used to. You press U, you go to the reputation tab at the top, then choose Delta Alliance, use the slider to fill up the requirements, and press collect reward. Not only will you need Delta marks for this, but if you want some of the special items, you will need to collect ancient power cells, which are used just like a Borg neural processor or a Voth cybernetic implant. These can be earned with higher difficulty PVEs or in various battle wreckage throughout the Delta Quadrant. I was confused by that one that said bat- various, various battle, battle wreckage. Various battle wreckage? Yeah, what is sure that? What various that battle wreckage. That's what they said. You don't get the neuroprocessors and wreckage. You only get them at the end of the, the PVE. So what's... Well, maybe they mean the Kobali homeworld. But they didn't say that. They, it said various battle wreckage. So we aren't going to go through every item in the reputation system, but to summarize... We have the Delta Alliance Assault, it's a four-piece space set, the Delta Alliance Ordinance, a three-piece space set, and the Delta Alliance Elite, three-piece ground set. Advancing through tiers will grant access to a variety of Thoron-infused Polaron energy weapons and Thoron-infused quantum torpedoes and mines, along with three unique kit modules. For tactical, you have Neutronic Grenade, Engineer has Neutronic Mortar, and science has neutronic radiation. And let's just highlight a few of the passive abilities that can be unlocked. 
for tier one, my favorite one was increased run speed because I was thinking that this would be really good for dice and ground battle zone if you do that on a regular basis. I wonder if you uh, if that works in conjunction with the snow boots because then you're just like Ooh, you're the flash. Yeah. For tier two base, the thing I liked was the increased engine speed and turn rate because I just love turning fast. The faster I can turn, the better. So anytime something increases your turn rate, that's that's the thing that I always gravitate towards. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I would probably lean towards the enhanced armor penetration, but the faster you can get away from the enemy, clearly the better it might be, but then, I don't know, it's a toss-up for me between the, the, the speed and the armor penetration. Yeah, for me, I, I mean, I like, obviously I like doing damage and being able to protect myself from damage, but the joy of flying... If it's not fun to fly the ship, then it's like, um, what am I even doing? I don't know. For me, to be able to turn and go fast. You like the speed. Around, you I like really the zoom. I like that. That's part of the experience for me. If I can't do that, I just get really, I don't enjoy it as much. Well, Captains, we won't go through each and every one of these, but we and we encourage you to uh, check out the entire blog. And actually, there's our first community question. What are you looking forward to? in the new Delta Rising reputation system. Let us know, of course, in the comments section for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO191 or in the forum post for this episode on the official Star Trek online forums. Now, one of the things that caught my attention about the reputation system is actually the space set. And we talk a little bit about this with uh, Phil Gordon Gonzalez Zaleski, uh, systems designer over at Star Trek Online, about this being a very overall defensive set. I like that idea. So I fly the the Avenger Battlecruiser, and in my deflector, I'm running the assimilated deflector and the assimilated engine. And when I got onto Tribble and saw the specs for the Delta gear, I'm pretty certain I'm going to switch out, right? The Borg deflector offers an increase to the uh, Graviton, but I'm not using gravity well on that ship, so it's, it's, a, it's almost a wasted bonus for me. However, the new Delta Rising set is very defensive. I can also see this moving into any of my escort builds because just the hole alone, I believe it was plus 35 hole repair or hole um, hit points. It was just um, it was just ridiculous. You're, it'll be unstoppable. You're, the, an Avenger, a ship like an, the Avenger is going to be unstoppable, especially if you're running a, a fleet tier 5 upgrade. It's just, I'm, I'm speechless about it. So... If you're interested in getting your hands on it, we encourage you to uh, load up Tribble if you are a, a gold member of Star Trek Online. And load up Tribble, go to Drazana Station, and right across from the bank, there's a glowing console. You can actually get a whole pack that will allow you to progress through the reputation system after several long clicks. But you'll still be able to progress through the reputation system. So in other words, that'll give you access to the passive abilities and the passive traits, rather. And you'll also have access to the actual items and the gear uh, that add no additional charge to you. So you can test those out. But like I said, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this gear. And I think that it's going to end up replacing some of the more conventional things that players typically use on their ships. And last but not least, reaching tier 5 will unlock concussive tachyon emission an active ground ability that generates a large tachyon blast that deals damage and nullifies enemy shields for a short time. Now keep in mind, everything is still subject to change. So in a blog by Star Trek Online arts director Brad Stoken, 
Players are invited to follow the creative process behind the design of the new intelligence ships available to players during Delta Rising. First, he talked about the goals of the ship. They needed to identify the visual language to communicate the intelligence theme. They had a goal of cohesion between the ships and a goal to, to fuse and blend originality and familiarity. He then breaks down each goal. For instance, Brad explains that when identifying the ship's visual language, they needed to incorporate the fact that they are stealthy, agile, aggressive, compact, and with an ability to gather intelligence, expose, and exploit an enemy. For you ship fanatics, it is a fascinating read with beautiful concept art and visuals. If you're interested in the design of ships, past, present, ships of the line calendar, whatever the case may be, this is the blog for you. Now, while we're on the topic of art, first-time STO blogger, graphic designer Tim Sorakata Davies talks about updating Voyager's mastered systems display that prominently appears in the bridge shots of the television series. In it, he describes reviewing inconsistencies and updating the panel to reflect changes made to the ship, specifically in Star Trek Online. Again, if you're an artist, this is definitely a blog for you. These are beautiful designs and certainly worth understanding the backstory to their creations. The last we saw of Neelix is when he left Voyager to rejoin his native race on a Talaxian mining colony in the episode Homestead, Season 7, Episode 23. Well, now we get to revisit his story and see what he's been up to. 32 years have passed and Neelix has been busy rebuilding the colony, which is now a thriving community that he is the leader of. They later outgrew their neighborhood and moved to the Enteva system, but they will soon move again because they have found a suitable M-class planet to live on. Yay. I am happy Neelix is back. He was a very warm and loving character, not to mention a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him in his new role as a leader. I'm used to seeing him in positions that are technically not as vital. I mean... Sure, he had some important jobs now and then, but in general, he was assigned things that made him more of a supporting role versus a leading role. At times, I felt like his pride was hurt, like he wasn't always appreciated, and I felt bad for him. I know some feel he was annoying at times, don't get me wrong, I understand that, but he was the only Talaxian on the ship, and with the cultural differences aside, I think he made the best out of a difficult situation, and he added much-needed joy and life to the ship. I remember watching Voyager and thinking to myself, if I was on Voyager, I would have been good friends with Neelix. Yeah, you would have. <laughs> I would have. I still wish I could try some of his weird dishes, if only the ingredients existed in real life. It looks like the Star Trek Online team that worked on his character had a great time too. They said it was fun and very rewarding, and that getting his likeness was extremely important to them. I think they did a wonderful job, and it's going to be a real pleasure to see him in-game in his new role and hear him. From what Al Rivera said in his interview in episode 189, Ethan Phillips did an amazing job with the voice work. Yeah, I I, um, I was a fan of... of I, I did not like Le Neelix. I did not like Kess, that's for sure. I liked Kess. No, I did not like Kess. I liked him. No. I did find Neelix annoying sometimes. I really did. I mean, sometimes, but, but... Then I felt bad for him sometimes, and then he was such a such a nice guy. I don't know. I'm glad he's back. Captains in a new blog, written by systems designer Jesse Heinig, were introduced to the new item upgrade system. And a highly controversial one at that. 
However, instead of just trying to recap it for you, we'll let you read the blog, and it's probably best to let lead designer Al, Captain Gecko Rivera, and systems designer Phil Gorgonzola Zaleski break it down for us. But before we continue, we want to remind you to give the blog a thorough read-through, as well as hit up the Dev Tracker on Twitter at STO underscore Dev Tracker. That'll give you some additional intel shared by the developers. So let's move on to our first interview with Al, Captain Gecko Rivera, discussing the new item upgrade system, followed by an interview with systems designer Phil Gordon Gonzalez Zaleski. Security clearance level three or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Cisco. Authorization Cisco Alpha One Alpha. Logs accessed. So we just got some new information on how Mark 12 items can be upgraded to Mark 14. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, yeah. So now that everyone's kind of looked that over, I hope everyone now sees the connection we're making with crafting. And now everyone, of course, has upgraded their crafting to level 15 in the school of their choice. So now you can really engage in the upgrade system. So what you can do now is you can take any object, any item in the game, pretty much any item in the game, including levelless items. Let me start with that. Levelless items will stop leveling up once you get to 50. They won't level up forever. If you want to continue to use those items, you'll have to upgrade those items as well. So you can basically right-click on any item and say upgrade, and you'll get this new UI, and you can drag an item in, and you drag in a tech upgrade item. And then there are accelerators which make your tech upgrade items better, and then you apply that upgrade to the item and you'll see two bars. There's a tech bar and there's a, there's a research bar. Once the tech bar reaches the end, you can then upgrade the item. The research bar gives you the percentage chance on the item when you upgrade it for it to become the next color up. So if you put in a blue item and you put in a bunch of tech upgrades and then you hit upgrade and it does cost dilithium to upgrade your items then depending on what chances you might have like a 10% chance to upgrade that blue to a purple. You can go upgrade all the way from purple to ultraviolet and you can uh, all the way up to gold. So you can take your Omega gear and upgrade it all the way up to Mark 14 gold. Ooh, that's huge. So every single item in the game, so Reputation will not be releasing Mark 14 items. They still will continue to release Mark 12s and will be rewarding some Mark 13s in the game. For the most part, most of the gear in the game will still continue to be released at Mark 12. If you want to get 13s and 14s out of them, you're going to have to upgrade them. Fleet gear, which starts off at ultraviolet, can go can go only one step away to gold quality. So they have a leg up. The upgrade kits themselves, they come in three qualities, a small, medium, large, and we call them basic, advanced, and superior. The basic ones you can buy for energy credits in the game. You can also craft them at crafting level five. There's an upgrade kit for every school. So there's beam ones, cannon ones, shield ones, engineering ones, etc. The medium ones, the medium kits, are available at level 10 in crafting, and then the large ones are available at level 15. And the difference is how many tech points and research points they apply, and really what it is is, well, why don't I just get a whole bunch of small ones? Well, the dilithium efficiency is much greater if you have the large kits. So you'll spend a much less dilithium because you'll only have to apply, say, five, it's an average about five large kits to apply to any piece of item you get it from 12 to mark 13, and 10 kits to go from 13 to 14. So, but a lot more of the mediums and a lot more of the small ones. There are also what's called research kits, and research kits also give you bonus research points. So if you're able to acquire research kits, 
then you'll be able to apply more research points to an item, and that increases your chance of proccing into the next color upgrade. And the way to get research kits is you got to play elite cues. You play elite cues, you get a special new crafting material which allows you to craft the special research kits. And so you play elite cues, you'll be able to earn the crafting material to make the best type of upgrade kits which will then allow you to turn your gear into purple, to ultraviolet and gold. So that's the loop there. Once you get a piece of gear, any given item to mark 14, you can still continue to apply kits to it until you increase its quality to ultraviolet and to gold. So once you apply kits and you upgrade it, it can't upgrade to 15 because the cap is 14, but what will happen is that you'll roll a chance to see, oh, did I increase my color? Did I've got 10% chance to go to ultraviolet? No. And then you do it again, and then you keep adding upgrade kits, and now your research chance goes up to 20%, and then 30%. Eventually, it'll go to 100%, and eventually, you'll get the color upgrade. So when you're in using Mark 14 gear, what you really care about are research kits. So you want to get extra research points. So that way, you want to roll that chance. You want to hit that chance to get a color upgrade with the least amount of dilithium. And there's also, like say, research accelerators. So you want to get a hold of research accelerators. Accelerators will be available in crafting packs. So you buy crafting packs, you'll find accelerators in there. Um, there are small, medium, and large accelerators, but the crafting packs only come with medium and large. And they come in both regular tech quality and bonus research quality. So that way you'll have uh, the research ones always are the ones that improve your ability to proc the next color. All applications of upgrades to an item have a chance of critting. So when you do, you have a chance of critting. That means that you might get double points applied to the item at any time that you apply something. I think it's something like 20%. It's a pretty good chance of critting. You might jackpot early. Just to clarify, so crafters will make the tech kits. Crafters make the best upgrade kits. Right. That's what it comes down to. You can get upgrade kits in the game, and you can buy the small ones from an EC store. But crafters always make the best upgrade kits, and the best upgrade kits are the most dilithium efficient. It does not cost dilithium to make an upgrade kit, but the large upgrade kits do cost rare materials. But you don't have to make a rare component, so it doesn't cost you dilithium to make those kits. So therefore, I don't need to worry about being a crafter as long as I know a crafter who can make me one of these kits. Yes, you'll have to buy them for a crafter, or maybe someone will generously give you one. And because I'm not a crafter, that will not necessarily affect how successful I am with the upgrade. No, your crafting skill does not affect your upgrading. It's just what upgrades you can get. So there were a few things in everything you just said. First being, why change the levelless items to require an upgrade? I think that I'm just kind of foreseeing the community discussion about that. Players may not be pleased with it. I'm not exactly sure why I don't like that idea. I guess just because of the idea that it used to be levelless. Why move in that direction for those items? Well, bottom line is, is that we want you to work to get Mark 14. Okay. Marks 1 through 12 is a pretty linear upgrade, pretty linear in power. So it's the difference between, you know, the improvement from 10 to 11 is about the same from 11 to 12. The improvement from 12 to 13 is twice as good as it was before. The improvement from 13 to 14 is like four times as good. It's a significant increase in power from 12 to 14, and that is just not something we were prepared to give away for free. With levelless items, there's a lot of levelless items out there. And levelless items were originally created as a convenience. For instance, I mean, if you have a quad cannon on the Defiant that you buy, you, can't, you need a way for it to continue to work with you as you level up. And bottom line is, is that the game, like I said, is balanced so that way you only need Mark 12 gear. 
to get through the end. So all the levelless gear that you have will still continue to be viable throughout all the content. If you want to participate in the elite content in the game at the elite difficulties and earn the bonus rewards, we're not going to give that away without effort. And so all your gear, like I said, all your levelless gear and your tier 5 ships and your existing Mark 12 gear will take you all the way to the end of the game. But if you want to participate, you're going to have to invest time or money or dilithium to anticipate in the elite content that gives you the better rewards. Uh, one of which being the research kits, which then gives you access to gold items. So that's the reason why we're doing it, but we certainly didn't make those items obsolete. They're still pretty powerful. Some items will not be upgradable. For instance, a lot of ship consoles, like you can't upgrade saucer separation. There's no level or mark associated with those kind of items. Those will just be converted to gold items. Some items we might have missed. So big thing that we are hoping to get from everybody from Tribble, now the information is released, is like if you see an item of yours that, hey, my spiral wave disruptors, I can't upgrade them or whatever, let us know and oop, we just missed that one and we'll fix it because all the random generated gear in the game was easy to convert over, but a lot of stuff was hand created and it was just a matter of finding them all and locating them all. And so we, I'm sure we missed a few. So just let us know and it's really easy to convert once we know which ones are missing. I have a feeling that the other thing that is going to probably ruffle feathers in the community is the idea that, you know, we went through the reputation system and then the items cost dilithium and then you would need to then invest in additional dilithium in order to upgrade that despite having gone through the reputation system. Okay, well, the other option could have been to just, say, add another tier to the reputation, tier 6, where you get Mark 14 gear and we would charge 50000 for the gear, right? So this allows you to take everything you've already invested in and put about 5,000 dilithium and then convert it to Mark 13. It's pretty inexpensive. So I think it's pretty fair because how much dilithium? I think it's like 20,000 or something to get a piece of gear. So it's only asking approximately 5,000 to go to Mark 13, maybe 10,000 to go to Mark 14. Some of the more premium gear costs about 40% more than that. The prices vary based on which item that you're upgrading. Yeah, like I'm sure hangers are probably a little bit more than... Hanger a... items, we're not actually going to be upgrading those. Right, right. Ships to the scale. The pets you spawn, they spawn at your level. So they don't need to be upgraded. We want to reintroduce Mark 14 gear in the game, and the other option would have been to simply just have, okay, now we have Mark 14 Omega gear. And if we release Mark 14 Omega gear or any other rep gear in the reputation system, who's going to stop along the way to make the 12 anymore? then tier 5 is useless. And we already removed the 10s, right? Because originally we had 10s, 11s, and 12s of the rep gear. But then it was like, well, who's going to buy the 10? They just waited to get the 12. So instead, we just said, okay, we just put the shield at level 1 and the engine at tier 3 and then whatever, the deflector, whatever pieces unlock at certain levels. And so if we were to mark 14, we'd have to turn all those into mark 14s and people would have to then rebuy them all. And we're not going to just grandfather everybody in. That's just not what you do in a game. It's like, oh, if you have the 12s, we'll just turn everything into Mark 14s. That's unheard of, and that would be silly. The whole point of the game is to play the game and earn more loot. So instead, we just allow you to instead just apply a little upgrade, and the gear continues to be useful to the end of the game. So um, like I said, it's about 5,000 dilithium approximately, and in small bite-sized chunks. So like a large upgrade kit only costs 1,000 dilithium. Small ones only cost a few hundred. So you can make your progress pretty easily with small little bite-sized pieces, but still be able to get one piece of gear, your favorite gear up within a pretty nominal price, far less than it would be to purchase that Mark 14 out directly from a reputation or dilithium store or even a fleet store. So it does cost dilithium to make the kit, though? No. 
does not cost a lithium to make the upgrade item. It only costs a lithium to apply it. That's important. That's because the crafters make the gear and we don't have to double charge you. So that way a crafter in your fleet and he can make all the kits for everybody and individually you pay the lithium for what you want to upgrade. If the crafter had to spend a lithium, then he's not getting anything out of it. He would never sell one to anybody. You'd have to charge outrageous amounts. It does cost a rare material of which the person who wants the upgrade could donate, right? He can say, here's my rare particle. Will you make me a beam upgrade kit? Makes you an upgrade kit, charges you some whatever he wants to charge you, and then you go and make it. It will cost energy credits to make an upgrade kit, though. All right. I mean, that was a lot of information. Yeah. Everyone, read the blog for full details, and you'll see some pictures and how it works. And But it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I think it's pretty accessible. I think every day you're going to be able to make very little effort, make a little progress in upgrading any one of your particular items that you'd like. But the real effort is in making it gold, if you really want to get it gold. But maybe along the way, you get lucky. If you want to try to play a numbers game and start with, say, a Mark One item, Right? Start with a Mark 1 item. It's really cheap to upgrade that to Mark 2. Maybe you'll get lucky and be able to pocket right into gold early. You can do that. I'm sure people are going to try to figure out little number curves to figure out, hey, what if I start with a Mark 1 blue and upgrade that, and I can get that to purple and then to gold, and all I have to do is then take it from gold all the way to 14 as opposed to trying to get it from 14 blue to 14 gold. So that'll be kind of interesting to see what people try to figure out the most uh, optimal way to upgrade their items. Well, Al, again, thank you so much for spending a little extra time with us to discuss the Intel buffs and, of course, the item upgrade. Thank you so very much, and I'm sure that players will be chomping at the bit to start experimenting with these new features. My pleasure. If there's any other questions, let me know, and I'll try to answer them. All right, Captains, this week we're joined by Star Trek Online's system designer, Phil Gorn-Gonzola-Zaleski, a first-time guest here on the show. Thanks for joining us this week, Phil. Thanks for having me. Now, Phil, before we start, why don't you tell us about yourself? How long have you been working on Star Trek Online, and what are your responsibilities? So I've been working on Star Trek Online since November 2012, uh, and my responsibilities run the gamut pretty much. Uh, So I'm I'm in charge of uh, leading the systems team here, Kind of having a good idea of what's going on primarily with, with ships is where I focus a lot. Uh, I've pretty much all the ships made in the past year have been from me. All the player ships, that is. I've done a few of the reputations. I'm kind of all over the place in the, on what I, what I do. You mentioned that you've been working on developing the player ships. Tell us about that. What is the day in the life of creating a new player ship? Okay, well, the first thing that has to happen is we have to have a, a fill a need, basically. Uh, they identify a kind of ship that we think players really would like, uh, or there's just a, an IP ship that we've just been itching to make. Those are typically the things we're trying to do, or you know, there's just some really cool art that we've been inspired by, some concept art, and sometimes function follows form. But generally speaking, it, we, there's, a, there's a need that we, we try to fill. Um, at that point, we decide what the ship should do mechanically. Uh, we decide kind of its staff its, uh, and its seating arrangement and what possible console ideas we could have for the ship. Then I, I start pitching some various configurations for that ship, different uh, configurations for its turn rate and hull and whatnot. And at this point, I don't know how big the ship is going to be, so it might be, I, I try to keep it kind of loosey-goosey and have, if it's going to be a really big ship, then I'm going to you know, try to keep the turn low and the hull high, that sort of thing. But if, if we do know how big a ship is, it's a lot easier. If I can interject a moment, do you reference any IP books, anything that, you know, Star Trek manuals? What do you reference, for instance, when designing a new ship, if anything? It's all over the place. 
so there are books. Al's got all of the books. Um, there are there are even you know novels where there are ship ideas. And some of it, like when we just like the ships for the new expansion, there is no. Those are all new ships. Those are all new ships made by Cryptic right. that are inspired by the designs of the three factions. In that particular case, we basically tell artists like this is the kind of ship we want to make, and then they give us concept art, and then. Sometimes that can influence the design that we've put forward. I know I've made, there's a ship that we haven't announced yet, so I can't talk about it too much, but its console came from the concept art. I designed the ship, the artist put two gigantic guns on the front of it, and I'm like, we need to make a console around that. So sometimes that kind of thing happens. So where we get our inspiration from or reference is sometimes from the web. Sometimes we'll see like just really cool Star Trek ships out there that, that kind of inspire us. Like that looks really neat. And you know, will be inspired by that particular that particular image. What do you think is probably the most challenging part of designing a player-based ship? And not just Federation ships, but also, you know, considering KDF or alien yeah. ships that may not have a precedence in IP. Yeah, so the thing that's always trickiest is trying to make the ship stand out and not be strictly better than every other ship within the same given category. And once you've made it unique enough, I think the hardest thing is then figuring out what the console is because you need to, this is what really drives the attractiveness of these ships to players. And so it needs to be appealing and have kind of a, it has to fit the theme of the ship and hopefully there's some, we can draw upon um, reference from the TV shows for what these consoles do. So sometimes we can't do that, but we always try to. We always try to be true to Star Trek whenever we can. And sometimes we just have to make stuff up. Actually, speaking of Trek and IP and ships of the line, so how big of a Trekkie are you, Phil? Uh, I'm kind of middle of the road. Um, I I grew up watching Star Trek with my dad, the original series, so I was a big fan of that. And when I was a kid, I watched Next Generation. So I'm a fan of the IP, but I am not an Al Rivera fan in the way he is. So uh, he's, a, he's a huge Star Trek fan, and uh, so I'm... Somewhere beneath that, you know, I, I do really like Star Trek, though, especially okay. the ships. And that's fair. You know, you don't have to be a walking encyclopedia to be working on a Star Trek game. And that actually could breathe some out-of-the-box thinking, right? I presume that's helped you in developing ships, especially things that are not specifically IP. Right. And like you're saying, it's helped and hindered me. You know, I'm always watching episodes and refreshing on stuff that I haven't seen in ages. But, uh, yeah, it, sometimes it's been helpful uh, because I can approach things with a different perspective. And other times it's like, I need to go watch a bunch of episodes right now to catch up and know what we're talking about. It's a mixed bag. What's been your favorite ship to develop so far? You know, it, it, the first ship that I got to make from top to bottom was the Adventure Battlecruiser. That is my favorite, and that's the one I fly in-game. So I think that's probably my favorite. You know, I used to fly, I was big on escorts for a while. And before, for a long time, I was actually running the Temporal Destroyer. And then I discovered the fleet assault battlecruiser and i can't imagine going back yeah that's a that is a pretty sweet ship she's mean she's a mean ship and and i I definitely like flying her okay so let's talk a little bit about the new ships coming down the line with uh, delta rising on october 14th uh specifically the ship upgrade system um now we've talked a little bit about this before we had uh, some discussion with al rivera about it what is your perspective on this new upgrade system. What did you have to do? What hurdles did you face in order to implement the system with the new Delta Rising expansion? Well, so uh, it was a colossal task because we literally had to make new versions of darn near every tier five ship in the game. And there's quite a few. 
130-something, 140-something. So we literally had to make brand new versions of each of those ships with a different inventory configuration, and then we had to create the paths for which these ships would upgrade and figure out which ships wouldn't upgrade and and that sort of thing. It sounds like it'd just be copy and paste on plus one, but it, it's a lot more complicated than that because there's the P5U and the tier six ships have different tables for leveling up, so we had to make sure all that was right and because they have scaling hit points and that sort of thing. So that was one of the big hurdles. The tricky part with this is we wanted the tier five ships to still be playable and for all of the content, all of the all of the story content, um, but we also wanted to give, you know, have more power available to players to try out the more challenging content. Now, something that has been buzzing around the community is the fact that players now have tier five versus tier five upgrade versus fleet tier five upgrade, then tier six, and eventually fleet tier six. And there's some concerns that this will be a little confusing, maybe a little complicated for newer players. So what are your thoughts on the amount of variety of ships available to max level players in Delta Rising? Well, you're right. There is a a lot of different categories for these ships. And I'm hoping that because you're never going to be seeing all these ships at once, they're not all pressed in front of you. Because you directly upgrade a ship that you own, you're never going to a store to upgrade your ship. You're either currently sitting in a Tier 5 ship, if you haven't upgraded, if you haven't upgraded before, you're either sitting in a Tier 5 ship or a Tier 5 fleet ship or a Tier 6 ship. And uh, at that point, you're going to be able to just click a button in your UI and upgrade your ship. So, yeah, there are a lot of categories, but there will never be a situation where there's hundreds, all these hundreds of ships sitting in front of you going, holy cow, how powerful is this ship? You really shouldn't be in a situation where that's happening. That is our goal. But I do understand how that can be confusing because there's a lot of different ship categories in our game. And then now there's these new grade categories in addition to ones that are already there. We're always going to try to find ways to make that easier to understand for players, and we are listening to player feedback on that. Well, let me ask you this. So, for instance, the player traits ended up being limited down to four, not only because of the power creep, but because there was a concern that the gap between newer max-level players and, and veteran players would be a little off-putting. Is, right. is there any concern to that with so many options for these upgraded ships? If you're comparing a two-level 60 characters, which is the new max-level uh, with Delta Rising, there is going to be a bigger potential power divide. I think that is unavoidable with the new stuff we've introduced into the game. Since we are increasing the level of capital, we are increasing the mark, marks of gear, the max mark. So, I mean, there is going to be a certain level of, I guess, power creep. That's just the nature of things when you increase the level cap in a game. So until players are caught up with their marks and their gear, then there is going to be a bigger gap. And that is to do a couple of things. We're trying to give players a type of challenge that's fitting for them. So we have players who are more casual, um, and we just enjoy story, and we have lots of story content. You can do that content in any ship, really, any tier five ship. And then you have the queues, and the standard advanced queues. You should be fine in a tier five ship. You'll you'll be better off in a tier five U or a tier five U or a tier six ship. But I mean, you're going to be fine. Then we have the elite queues, which are super hardcore, and you gotta be really good if you're not flying a, a T five U or a tier six ship. And still, you have to be really good. Those are super super hardcore. To basically go back to answer your question is that there is going to be there's a certain level of the delta between a new fresh level 60 and a veteran level 60 that is going to exist that uh, did not exist prior to this expansion that's something that we accept when increasing the level cap and increasing the maximum level of gear in the game and that sort of thing 
So you can do the elite PVE in a tier five upgrade ship. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It'll be hard. I really don't feel that the the overall difficulty in a Q will be felt too much between a T five U and a tier six ship. Okay. Tier six base ship. Yes. So not a fleet tier six ship, which Correct. we haven't been. You know, there have been no announcements of yet, but eventually we assume that there would be. You know, fleet tier six ships. Speaking of that comparison, you know, between something like a tier 5U or tier 6, what do you do in-house to test the differences between these ships? I'm sure that's something players are curious about. So we test them internally, like on our own machines. I test the heck out of every ship I make, and I'm a pretty avid player, so I'm pretty familiar with the ships that are in-game currently. And there's a certain level of performance that is expected out of these ships, but there's also pretty simple math behind the ships and they're all being increased by the same amount. So as long as we tune the challenge in our game appropriately, there shouldn't be a big difference between a T5U and a Tier 6 ship. A Tier 6 ship with like a specialist seat is going to be way more versatile because they can use specialist powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do get plus one bridge officer power, which could do a bit for the ship. But uh, when it comes to a Q, the amount of benefit that's going to give you is... I think you'll notice it, but it's not going to be a massive game changer. But to answer your question, like we have a QA team that gives us feedback on these ships. We test them when we do uh, internal testing of our content. We have to our content team who is constantly testing all the content they create. Uh, we give them ships to, to test in and get feedback on. We have some of them running in Tier 5 ships, some of them running T5U, and some are running uh, Tier 6 ships. So that's how we test it. We try to kill two birds with one stone in that we're testing content. So we might as well be testing with new ships. Two questions that popped into my head. First is, there's not a possibility, you don't think, that there will be an abundance of players trying to form teams, and they're going to be like, no, you're in a tier 5 you, you can't do this elite, we're not going to do it. I mean, I'm sure there will be. I'm sure certain fleets and certain clans will want to try to do that type of tactic. But there shouldn't be a concern that you pug and they're flying a tier 5 you, and oh my goodness, it's Q is going to be terrible. I don't see that situation happening as a common thing. There'll be elitist players, I think, that may, that may want to exclude people who don't have the most optimal tip-top build. You don't see people excluding people from content because they're not running a ox-to-bat mm-hmm. build. Mm-hmm. You don't see that happening, so I really don't see this happening. I mean, the big advantage on a Tier 6 ship versus a T5U ship is the versatility. They're more versatile, hands down. They have access to, in, in this case, uh, for launches, Intel powers, and those are they're pretty cool. Are they game changing? I don't think so. Uh, I think they're interesting, and I think they're fun, and I think they they can you know offer you some different gameplay options. I, I think there's going to be situations where you're like, nah, I really want that engineering power, you know, or I really want gravity well, I really want attack pattern omega three. I mean, so there's and therefore you wouldn't take an Intel power. Now the other thing that players bring up a lot, um, and I understand, is the additional bridge officer seat. And in some situations where you would have a lieutenant upgraded to a lieutenant commander, effectively, it can be a pretty big uh, jump in power. That is a big difference in these ships. That said, T5Us are really solid. They are the same ship you've been flying, but they've been buffed. They're stronger. Again, the primary benefit tier six ships have is versatility. And a lot of it's going to have to do with what kind of gear you have, too. So It, it is really a situation where if you are a skilled player and you're in a tier five U ship, you're going to be fine. It's not going to be that big of a difference. It's also, it's also a, a question of piloting skills, too. It's not just about the gear. Right, yeah. 
So let me ask you this question, and this is something I asked Al Rivera, and I'm curious to see what you have to say. Why not just fire all the ensigns with tier six and up? <laughs> just lieutenant, lieutenant commander, and commander? Yes, yes. Because <laughs> there's some cool powers in ensigns. They fill the, the quick recharging, commonly used powers. It'd be weird to have less seats being more powerful. I don't know. Well, instead of just removing them, but no, it would be instead of having an ensign slot, let's say you have five, a five station ship. So instead of having one ensign, you get a lieutenant or lieutenant. Uh, oh, no, I lieutenant. just pure, yeah. pure ensign seats. Well, yeah, yeah. sometimes there's a seat left over. We don't want to have like a situation where there's three lieutenant commander seats or right now we don't want to have two commander seats. So sometimes there's a, there's a remainder. Sometimes you just want to throw a little bit of a universal seat on the ship, so there you go, you have an instant universal. It's often uh, either a leftover seat, or uh, we want to add a little bit of versatility to the seat, or to the ship, rather, so we have a, an instant station. That's typically how that comes about. I don't set about, like, we need to have one instant on all these ships. That, that just, that never happens. Um, it just usually ends up being uh, a leftover, because I don't want to have six seats on a ship, because that's going to be UI bloat, and I don't want to have four seats, because that means there's going to be two commanders, you know, so it, it, you end up with remainders. So I want to ask about player feedback. What do you look for when ships finally get into the hands of players and adjusting, if anything, the powers or the abilities of a ship? That's a really good question. So what I look for is there's signal versus, there's a lot of signal to noise ratio that I'm looking for is a good signal. So players who are giving uh, objective feedback, telling us basically here's a situation where the ship is too good or not good enough and or here are ships that are comparable within the same ship category and it is either failing or succeeding and there's you know there's different factors that we use to balance ships but if it's either too good or not good enough and there's good comparisons that's really good feedback to us if they are able to compare apples to apples instead of you know, apples to oranges uh, that's really useful the feedback we've been getting on a lot of our ships has just been over the past years, which has been fantastic. Uh, we have people who test our ships on our test server, and they've just been just amazing. So they've helped get a lot of these ships whipped in the shape and, and uh, pretty balanced and keep things interesting. And I've just been approaches to uh, powers I hadn't considered, and uh, that's thanks to players. Actually, uh, something else is when putting the ship in the player's hand for testing, is there something that you would like for them to look at that Perhaps you and the team at Cryptic just don't have the opportunity of, of really getting knee deep into, you know, maybe something like PVE or is there anything that you want or look for specifically because you just cannot get to it in house? That's another really good question, and typically because we're all busy, <laughs> we're all making the game. We don't have as much time to play and test in groups settings as much as we'd like. And our QA team does uh, most of that for us, but it's, it's unfortunate we don't have enough time to do a lot of group PvP. So things like uh, group PvP and uh, large-scale encounters, getting feedback on that is tremendously helpful because there are often edge cases that we just don't think of. Gosh, I never thought about the power functioning that way in this particular setting. And always getting feedback on various difficulties uh, in, in queues, for example, that's tremendously useful. Basically running through a wide range of content is tremendous. Uh, that's really, really helpful. So I want to get back a little bit to the whole upgrades in the Tier 6 and now the new trait system associated with leveling a ship from 50 to 60. It's hit Tribble, and as we've looked at some of the specs for the traits themselves, it certainly enhances the strength of the ship, or its strengths. 
So for instance, I'm just kind of going off the top of my head. I don't have them in front of me, but on a cruiser, the trait will enhance maybe its hull or defenses. Uh, on an escort, it enhances its precision. And one discussion that we had, I believe it was in last week's episode, was why, for instance, why not, why shouldn't the traits maybe enhance the weakness of the ship instead of enhance its strength? So an example would be, Instead of the cruiser getting the whole improvement from the trait, it would be the escort getting the whole improvement from the passive traits. Very good question. Uh, and the reason for that, the reason we decided to focus on a ship's strength is to address a trend we've noticed. As ships become more and more getting too similar, there's not a big enough difference between the ships. We really want our ship classes to stand out. So we want to give them a role, a very clear role, like this ship is really good at doing damage. This ship is really good at taking damage. This ship is really good at controlling enemies and supporting allies. So we, we wanted to further differentiate these ships by playing to their strengths instead of their weaknesses. If we played to their weaknesses, uh, ships would become too similar, a little too well-rounded. We want ships to be able to really focus and do one thing really well. So that, in addition to whatever their bridge officer seating configuration allows them to do, they, they're also going to be able to just... I'm a damage ship, I'm really good at that. I'm a cruiser, I'm really tanky. And then you have the carriers, which is kind of a mixed bag. So that's really what we were going for, is to play with the, to the ship's strengths and weaknesses. So let's talk a little bit about its implementation and you know what players can expect. How much of Tribble is final product, if anything? Talk to us about that. Talk about the genesis of the trade system and what we can look forward to. I'm not exactly sure what's on the build today. It's always changing, so it's, it's hard for me to know what has gone through QA and what is on Tribble. I can tell you what you will see. Okay. What you'll probably see in Tribble right now is, is that every T5U and every Tier 6 ship will have, uh, at least, will have their four Starship Mastery passive abilities. And, and as I said earlier, those four are there to play upon the ship's strengths. Tier 6 ships get a Starship trait in Starship Mastery Level 5. T5U and Tier 6 ships all have four levels, but Tier 6 ships have a fifth level, which is just a trait. There's no additional buff. And that trait has to be slotted to get the benefit from it. Just like you would a reputation trait, you would slot it exactly. in your tunes, in your paper dolls UI. Correct. And does that start after level 60, then you start getting the traits? So the way the, the Starship Mastery works is, so uh, let's take the Avenger Battle Cruiser. So if you pop into that the Tier 5 view version of that ship, you upgrade that. You have a little experience bar on your uh, paper doll for the ship. There's a tab that says Mastery on it. And in that tab, you'll see a little experience bar and your passive powers there. As you defeat enemies, you will gain skill points, and skill points go to filling up that experience bar. And when you fill it up, you level up and you gain a passive ability. So that's really how that works, is you gain skill points through combat, and that levels up your Starship Mastery. Uh, and if you are in a Tier 6 ship, and you get enough experience to get them to Tier 5, Level 5, you unlock that trait, and you can use that trait on any of your ships. You just slot it just like you would a captain trait or reputation trait. Now, the XP gained for this to progress, is it something that I should expect to have to... Okay, let's say I'm 50, right? Is it something I should expect to have to wait 10 levels to reach the fifth mastery? I guess, obviously, it's dependent on how many baddies you kill, you know, and how engaged you are. But what is the length of time, I guess, it it would take on average to get through all five tiers of a tier six mastery... Uh, we are aiming for about 10 to 15 hours to get to 15. Will it actually take that long? It's kind of all over the place. It really depends on, like you said, how active a player you are and exactly what you're doing. So, But we wanted a fairly casual player to be able to get it in 10 to 15 hours. 
if you're pretty hardcore and you're really efficient, you're going to be able to burn through it more quickly. Will any bonus pools work with this? You know, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I, I don't know. What can players expect from the mastery traits, the final tier 5 traits that will be available to them from tier 6 ships? Talk to us a little bit about what players can expect to gain from that fifth mastery trait. Sure. Uh, so I had a lot of fun designing these. Uh, and I think they're even harder to design than Starship consoles. The design philosophy behind these is that they are duty officer power plus, right? There is no chance for something to happen. They are basically like a super duty officer power. They modify a bridge officer power typically and give you some sort of bonus when you use them. I think the Intel ships are a really good example because these three ships, the three fed Intel ships have synergy between them. They have kind of, they build a bridge between each other. So basically the idea is they built these three traits to work with one another. So the Phantom Intel Escort has a uh, trait called reciprocity. And the way this works is basically the idea is that if I am not hit by an enemy, if I am missed, I gain a recharge boost to my tactical and intelligence bridge officer ability. So for every time an enemy misses me, the cooldown will lessen, will shorten. That is correct. And to help enemies miss you, the battle ready trade on the Eclipse Intel Cruiser, what it does is every time you use an engineering or Intel bridge officer ability, you gain a defense and damage resistance buff. So that defense buff is going to help you be missed more like more often. There's a synergy there. And, and finally, on the Squire Intel Science Vessel, there's a, uh, an ability called Emitter Synergy. And uh, what this does is Every time you use a tactical or intelligence bridge officer ability, you gain a small bonus to both exotic damage and shield healing. So it's encouraging you to use a wide range of powers. I imagine the gameplay flow of these things work, three working together. Battle ready is granting you a defense buff. That defense buff is working with reciprocity to cause enemies to miss you more frequently, which causes your tactical and intelligence bridge officer abilities to recharge more quickly, which allows the mitter synergy to boost your shield healing and exotic damage. So the three work together pretty seamlessly, pretty nicely. That's the idea behind these traits is that we ultimately want to build synergies. And you might see like the Romulan traits and the Klingon traits don't synergize in the same way, but, but our plan is to synergize with them at later tier six ships. So you're gonna see, let's see one of the tricky things is to introduce new traits that are interesting that synergize with the old traits. So. Right. Um, that's what we're thinking about when we're making these trades. So these are like the existing cruiser powers. These are almost adding to them, where with reciprocity, it's affecting my team. It's affecting people around me. It's just affecting yourself. I'm assuming you have all three of the trades. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So I've leveled up all three ships. I've gotten the mastery for all three, and now I've put them all in my paper doll. Right. Okay. Now, the specs on the Dauntless haven't been released yet. I haven't been given the okay to talk to you about it. Well, please, by all means, tell us all about the Dauntless. Okay. Well, uh, it, it's called the Experimental Science Vessel. Okay. Um, and uh, it's a pretty interesting ship. Uh, I had a lot of fun designing it, and I, I went back to the drawing board a couple times on it for a couple of reasons. I, mostly, I wanted to wanted to make it stand out as a pretty unique ship. We have some plans to release other ships and I, down the line, which I can't talk about. But I wanted to make it stand out amongst ships that will come out in the future. So I took it in the tactical direction. It is a science ship, but it is more tactical than most other science ships. Is there anything existing in the game that you would compare it to, if possible? So the ship I would most closely compare it to would be the reconnaissance science vessel, the Luna. Okay. Uh, so it's closest to that in that it is tactically centric, but it is much more so. And in addition to that, um, it has a hybrid seat. It has a lieutenant... Intel science seat on it. 
all of the non-Intel ships that are coming out with the expansion will include a hybrid specialist seat. Cool. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool ship. It's definitely pretty tactical focused. And uh, the one you're going to see, it's got three tactical console slots, two engineering, and five science. Um, it has lieutenant tactical seat, a lieutenant commander tactical seat, a lieutenant engineering seat, a lieutenant intel science seat, and a commander science seat. And can you talk about the mastery trait for the Dauntless? Yes. It is called Radiant Nanite Cloud. And uh, what it does is it causes all of your whole healing powers to heal for a percentage of that heal amount over a period of time in a three-kilometer radius. So basically, it, it turns your, your whole healing powers into team healing over time powers. Oh, so okay. if, I, if I were to heal you, I think the way it would work, if I were to heal, was to heal you for 1,000 damage uh, with, uh, say, engineering team, you'd be healed for 1,000, and then uh, there'd be, I think, four ticks of... Yeah, anyway, so there's, there'd be, there's a heal over time. So you'd be getting healed for a small amount over time. How that nice. works? So I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's pretty nice. It is noticeable. So I was able to get into Tribble last night and play with the reputation system, which you also have been involved with, correct? Uh, this one less so, but I'm pretty familiar with it. So the last two or three reputations, at least two, have been the gear has been focused, you know, a bonus against uh, the Undine or a bonus against the Voth. I've noticed so far on Tribble, we're not seeing that so far. Um, and I was kind of pleasantly surprised. Like I told you, I'm flying the Assault Cruiser, uh, the Avenger. And right now I'm running the Borg Deflector and the Borg Engine. And so I'm thinking I'm going to swap that out with the new Delta Rising Engine and Deflector. Because it's very defensive. You know, what was the direction in these new items, this new uh, energy type that I don't think has been seen in the game before, correct? Thoron, sort of. was it? Am I just showing that I don't know the weapon types? As no, 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 not at all. They're actually, they, they deal Polaron damage, but okay. the proc is, the deals radiation, which is, the, that's the Thoron radiation. But they're technically Polaron weapons. Okay. But you're right, the, the items, we intentionally designed the items for this reputation to not be specific to a given enemy. They'll be very useful against a particular type of enemy, which I can't mention. Part of our, our long-term plan and revealing stuff. But they are very useful against this unnamed enemy. They're not specifically designed to handle them, but they are good tools to help mitigate the nastiness of those enemies. That was an intentional choice, partially because we didn't want to spoil the story, that if we said, these weapons are great against blah, then you would know, hey. We didn't want to do something weird like gate out the reputation if you haven't completed a mission or something dumb like that. So. Uh, we decided just to kind of keep the benefits a little more subtle. They're there, and they will, they will definitely help when you're fighting this enemy. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So, uh, so that was an, an intentional choice. You're right about the Thoron weapons. That it's a new proc, a new type of Polaron weapon. We basically dropped the existing Polaron proc and weapon at the new one. Cool. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I think that it's going to make a ship like the Assault Cruiser, unstoppable. You're pretty, you're make, it's going to make you pretty tanky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that, for instance, that's something I've noticed with escorts since the trait system was pulled back a bit, right, where the reputation trait system was pulled back that. I noticed my escorts aren't as tanky as they were before, but I think that these two new consoles and their set bonus, at least, at least the two-piece set bonus, is going to be pretty good for an escort. And, again, the Avengers just, it looks mean with it. Right. So, Al... 
discussed with us that Mark 14 gear will not be available as drops in the game, but only available through the upgrade system. Correct. This usually isn't typical for an MMO, when in most cases, you know, some of the only methods of getting high-level gear is to complete a raid that results in a funny viral YouTube video like Leroy Jenkins. So can you tell us a little bit about why the team went in the direction of, okay, this uber elite gear can only be attained through upgrade? So, you know, a lot of games have a tiered content in that you have tiers of raids that are released over time. We don't really tend to do that. We tend to keep content, basically if you play a standard difficulty queue, the standard difficulty queue of that same level that comes out a year later is going to be within the same ballpark of difficulty. We don't have tiers of difficulty. And because of that, we wanted to have a long-term goal so that in the long-term goal is to be able to proficiently complete the, the new elite content, the new elite difficulty. So we're basically recalling the old elite, the elite that you're used to. We're calling that advanced now. So that stuff is going to remain challenging. But the new elite is super hard. And we want to give players a reason to work towards that. We didn't want it to be as simple as an, an item drops or you work up a rep to get an item, which is a time investment, but uh, we want to get a little more long-term goal that any player can work toward. Even casual players can get to Mark 14, and you might get lucky and get rarely upgrade on the way. But our goal really was to provide a long-term goal for players and keep them interested in the game for a long period of time, as opposed to just, oh, I got my Mark 14 gear, I'm done. And then once you did get the Mark 14 gear, we wanted to give you a reason to use it. So now you have the elite cues that are super hard that will give you pretty great rewards. Uh, that, that's really the, really the goal is just to give players stuff to do for a long time. Now, can you play in the elite cues if you don't have that Mark 14 gear? It's going to be really, really hard um, if you don't. It's going to be hard even if you have Mark 14. It's super tough. So I, I consider myself pretty proficient, and I do pretty well in the elite cues uh, on the live servers, but I find the challenge level of the new elite pretty darn hard. Completing it in Mark 13 and 14 is, I think, is doable. 12 is going to be really hard. So if you're a really skilled player, it might be possible, but I would highly suggest striving toward getting Mark 13 and 14 gear to complete that content. And do you know what items will not be available for upgrade? That's a good question. So hanger pets won't be upgradable because they don't work that way. They don't have marks. And the rarity grade, the color, is just basically them getting new powers. So they're not upgradable that way. It just wouldn't be possible. Kits aren't upgradable either. It's just the way they're configured, it just it, it just wouldn't work the way they are right now. That's not to say they won't release new kits. Maybe they might be upgradable in the future. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, other things that won't be upgradable would be levelless items. So a lot of the consoles that come on ships, those won't be upgradable because they just don't scale in that way. So they will just level up with you. It will be dependent upon your level and they will be gold. Typically, if you see an item that is gold, um, it means it cannot be upgraded. If you see an item that isn't gold and can't be upgraded, it's probably a bug. Uh, so an example of gold items you're gonna see would be like the heavy dual proton cannons on the Dyson ships. Those should be gold because they can't be upgraded. Basically, any item that is levelless. What about the fused weapons, you're, like the railgun? Right, the railgun is gold and unupgradable and they will level up with you. They do scale in power. I'll actually make sure that those do get better. That would be kind of a bummer. Have this huge item that just lags behind. So that, right. that, that won't happen. Yeah, that, that's not going to happen. 
So I think that there's a concern from the community that the system feels just a bit overcomplicated. And I won't lie, even after having spoken to Alvera about it, I still had trouble wrapping my head around it. I had to get on TeamSpeak and watch some videos of people who had already started playing with it on YouTube. But if I understand the system correctly, players should focus on upgrading an item's mark number before worrying about the quality. And then, right. and then once your item has reached the max mark, then worry about improving its color quality. Now, there is a chance, though, if I'm understanding this, that the item will crit. And as you level up the mark number, it will also improve its quality. So my question is, what should be the player's method of upgrading an item to get the best results? Or perhaps a more specific question would be, can a player strictly focus on upgrading an item's quality? So for example, at level 50, I want to make my Mako gear mark 12 gold. I don't, I don't want to make it 13. I just want to make it gold. So instead of applying tech points, will I be able to apply research kits to the item to get it gold first and then worry about improving its mark level? Not really, no. You see, you have tech points and research points. And the only way research points get applied and there's a check for you to gain a rarity upgrade or quality upgrade when you actually fill up your tech points. You have to fill up your tech points for that roll to happen. So there is no way to just like focus on increasing the quality level. But my advice to a player who wants to get the most out of the system and not spend a ton of the lithium, there are various qualities of kits, of upgrade kits. There's the common ones which you can buy for energy credits, and then there's the ones you can make with crafting at higher levels, level 10 and 15, I believe. Use those because the amount of tech points to dilithium is way lower. You're spending way less dilithium per tech point on the higher quality kit. So yeah, they're a little harder to get, and you're going to spend more dilithium up front, but the amount of dilithium per tech point is better. It's better ratio in your favor using the better kits. So they're a little harder to get, and it may look like you're spending more dilithium, but if you look, if you compare the tech points you're getting per kit to a higher tier upgrade kit, you're going to notice that hey, I'm spending a lot less dilithium per kit over time to fill up that bar. So that is my advice, is get the best upgrade kit you can. That way you'll save yourself a ton of dilithium over time. Well, let me ask this also, because according to a post from Jesse Heinig, a player cannot craft, if you're level 52, you're not going to be able to craft a Mark 14 yet. You have to be able to craft something that your, that your tune, your paper doll, can will be able to use. So I guess, ultimately, to finish that thought is, I could, in theory, you know, stick to 52, then bring that Mark Fort 13 to gold and then worry about it. Because I guess there's a lot of concern about how much dilithium it's actually going to cost. So I think players are already starting to think of ways of what's going to be the least expensive way. And like you said, of course, using the most upgraded kits. But I guess I'm just trying to understand the limitations of the item. Because in theory, if I'm not mistaken, from what you said, I cannot make a Mark 12 item like a Mako or something of that nature. I cannot turn that gold before I make it Mark 13 or 14. Right. So there is no such thing as Mark 12 gold. It is possible to get a gold Mark 12 item, and let me tell you how. So if you take a lower Mark item, and you get really lucky leveling it up, say you take a Mark 1 item, and you level it up, and you upgrade it all the way up to Mark 12, there's a chance it might upgrade the blue, you know, or green and blue, then purple and ultra rare, and then gold. It's possible. Really unlikely, but there is a way that it could be done. It's just really, really unlikely. Okay. Um, that chance to get enough research points while 
uh, upgrading an item from a lower tier and above it, and not at max rank. It's really, really unlikely. So is it safe to assume that as I'm upgrading an item, my character will not be able to use it during gameplay while it's upgrading? So for instance, Correct. I will not be able to take advantage of a counter command set bonus if one of those pieces are out and I'm upgrading it. I can't use it. Correct. While it's in escrow upgrading and the item is actually being swapped out, uh, you will not be able to use the item. Oh man, that's ki that's kind of brutal. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm gonna upgrade like one thing at a time. Then it's gonna take forever. Oh man, I didn't. That's... that's that's definitely one strategy. If you if you have a lot of kids, just focusing on ranking up one item at a time, it's not a bad way to go. Or I could do a bunch at a time. Well, how many can you do at a time? Uh, I believe there are three three upgrade slots at a time. Okay. I could just do three things at a time and not play. Yeah, so that can't be good. I mean, right? A player goes in. I'm running, for instance, right? I'm running on my Assault Avenger. I'm running the two-piece board set and a two-piece Dyson. So I will need to find something to fill that spot in while I'm upgrading those items, right? That is correct. And if you don't have enough dilithium oh, no. to, to get the item right away, yeah. you have to wait like... Is the two-day oh, wow. countdown, is that accurate oh, or is that coming so down? I'm glad you brought that up. So right now, the times on Tribble are uh, crazy. There is a mandate to drastically reduce uh, both the buyout cost and the time. So both of those went way down. So I think in a future patch, you're going to see way more reasonable numbers. Because they were, they were pretty crazy. I, I had upgraded an item to Mark 14. And then I saw a, an 18-hour cooldown. I was like, yeah, that's crazy. Right. So, uh, so yeah, you're gonna you're gonna see way more reasonable times in the lithium cost in the future triple build. Okay. Can you give us an idea? I mean, are we still looking at several hours, or is it going to be like the reputation system where I run the upgrade and I just have to wait, you know, 15 minutes or something? I'm not entirely certain. I think it is still hours, but it's not 12, 16 hours. It's less. It's much less. But I do think it is. You still time is still measured in hours. Okay. What I'm probably gonna do then is just start three upgrades right when before I, I log out exactly. and log out and then get back in. That is the intended, that's the intended gameplay loop, is to earn all the kits, get all the dilithium, and then before you log out, throw a couple items in the, in the upgrade topper. And then when you come back next day, they're done. That's the ideal gameplay flow. But if you, you know, you do have the ability to buy them out early if you want to upgrade them to that game session. So that is available as an option. So when we currently buy reputation gear from a reputation store with dilithium, we get the choice of what modifiers the item has. We know ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But since those items are purple, very rare quality, it seems that when they get upgraded, they'll receive an additional modifier at random. Right. So doesn't that potentially make it extremely costly to outfit a ship with all equal modifiers and all the same type of weapons? Is there a chance that that might change where a player could select the modifier that you want? So it's a complicated question. So there's a number of problems going on in this situation. So the first one is that players do not value all modifiers equally. You know, some of them are better than others. So I think a better short-term solution, because we, we just don't have the time to right now to make it so that you can select the mod in any way, right? Now. We don't have the ability to do that right now. Maybe in the future at some point, uh, I can't promise anything, but we, we'd love to do that. But the short-term solution would be to balance those mods. So if you rolled a damage mod on a space weapon, you're not like, ah, crud. I didn't want that. I wanted crit damage or I wanted accuracy instead. So what we'd like to do is if you got damage and you didn't want damage, you'd be, eh, okay. 
that's that's more the result we want as opposed to ah oh, man that, that throw it away ah start over man, that would stink right so ultimately the dream would be to have some way for players to swap out mods and items or to build items with specific mods that would be great we're not going to have that at launch and we have no immediate plans to do that but it's something that we would like to do it's a good idea and i think it would benefit the game but again i'm reiterating that there are no promises nothing immediate for that that's just something that we all think is a great idea and it would be nice to have okay. but a, an interim solution would be to make those mods all relatively equal and right now that isn't the case we could you know shore up the difference right now there's a perceived difference between the powers and there's an actual difference between the powers and so i think that the delta between the two is not as great as it might appear, but we're, we're definitely looking at balancing that out. That's actually something someone's working on right now. Yeah, I think that players would certainly appreciate it. I think that's a mechanic that we would all be excited for. You know, because I think to myself, okay, when I'm, when I'm in my escort, I care firstly about accuracy and then about my crit chance. You know, so would I care much about damage? I don't know. I don't know that I would. But yeah, if that's something that is being thought of, I think would be very much appreciated by the player base to be able to select their mods. Uh, it's something we wanted to do for crafting. It just didn't happen. All right. Well, Phil, thank you so very much for stopping by. But before we go, is there anything that we did not cover that you'd like to address? Is there anything that you've caught on the forums, questions, concerns, comments that uh, you'd like to address before we let you go? I don't think so. I think we've answered quite a bit of the concerns I've seen on the forums today. Any secrets that you're allowed to give us that we didn't ask about? There's lots of stuff I'd like to tell you, but... I don't think I don't think I can. <laughs> did, we, did we talk about what the console was for the Dauntless? I don't think we did. I can talk about that. I think yeah, what's the probably, console? Uh, the console, it's a particle synthesizer beam, or synthesis beam, and what it does is it's pretty crazy. The target enemy and all enemies near it become confused and take on the appearance of the Dauntless and uh, attack each other, and you oh create a photonic copy of yourself near you, kind of in the same way that Romulans can create warp shadows. It basically, you create bedlam. It, you create madness with the uh, particle synthesis. Wow. It's, it's pretty, it, it is crazy. We're, we're still working on the power, trying to make it even crazier, but uh, that's what it does in its current state. Yeah, we're very excited to see what the details of the ship uh, roll out on the upcoming blog uh, to get all the juicy hull uh, stats and shield modifiers and all that jazz. So we're looking forward to that. Oh, we have one last important question. Yeah, one last very important question. SFC3 asks, do you actually like gorgonzola cheese? Yes, especially on burgers. Amazing. Nice. Nice. Very cool. Well, Phil, thank you again so very much for stopping by and talking with us about the ship upgrades, item upgrades, reputation system, a lot of great content, a lot of great discussion. And uh, we hope to have you on again sometime soon. And We'll see you in October. All right. Thank you, guys. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. All right, Captains, we're at the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming from you. And as a reminder, last week's community question for episode 190 was for you to share with us your thoughts on the new hybrid bridge officers. Our first piece of feedback is from Logan Omega, who commented on the Facebook post for this episode. I find the same power that Cookie liked, the frictionless particle grenade with the music that was included, and torpedo transport warhead. But I also like the site-to-site ensnare, which reminds me of teleport foe from the teleportation power pool that City of Heroes had. I was also wondering 
Do you all have anything planned for your 200th episode? It's not that far off now. Personally, I would be interested in a live video show on Google Plus or wherever you might find that you would do that type of thing. Funny you should mention that, Logan Omega, because to help celebrate our 200th episode, we are actually taking a trip to Cryptic Studios and Perfect World Entertainment, like we mentioned at the start of the show. So that's happening actually in the second week or first week of October. October 8th is when we head out, uh, just a few days before the launch of Delta Rising, but we'll be there to cover that launch, to cover the story, to get information about its development, the story arc, everything that we have to wait to learn about until the launch of the show. We'll be there to, to get interviews from devs, from community managers like Captain Smirk and Laughing Trendy to find out everything there is to know about Delta Rising before it launches. And then the pretty much the whole month of October is just going to be awesome Delta Rising goodies. And it, it's just going to be a lot of fun. It'll be a, a whole lot of fun. And our 200th episode will probably be sometime in November. And I think the video is a great idea. So Azurian emailed us via incoming at com. Got to say, my favorite has to be the frictionless grenade. Not sure if they got the idea from me, but for the longest time I commented on the Star Trek Online forums that the Borg would not have been much of a threat if we coated the floors with a frictionless substance. The only way they could adapt to that is to fly. Hmm, flying Borg. Scary thought, though. You know, Azurian, if not for you, a lot of things wouldn't be the way it is in Star Trek Online. Love you. Just kidding. But, you know, that brings up a good point. If the Borg have assimilated thousands of species across thousands of galaxies, across thousands and thousands and thousands, why are they only humanoid? It's a valid question. You know, the Undine are the only non-humanoid species we've seen the Borg attempt to assimilate. Why is everybody bipedal? Berthoff writes via PriorityOnePodcast.com. Hey guys, excellent podcast as usual. I love the idea of the hybrid boffs, especially their abilities. The kinetic magnet and subnucleonic carrier waves sound amazing, and I agree wholeheartedly with Cookie on the new grenades. Is that it? I don't know if I have the key right. <laughs> yep, that was it. That was nope, that was good. That was good. Aqua Shusen writes on PriorityOnePodcast.com. I like the idea of hybrid boffs. I understand the space intelligence skills for tier 6 ships only, but it kind of bites. But I can work around that. So far, my favorite skills are trip wire drone, kinetic magnet, subnucleonic carrier wave and torpedo, and transport warhead. On the Star Trek online forum post for this episode, STO Leviathan 99 writes... You mean Sto Leviathan 99. Whatever. I think the multiple tiers were a mistake. The upgrade from tier 5 should simply be tier 6, instead of complicating it with tier 5U, tier 6 intelligence, fleet tier 6, etc. And the tier 6 ships should be balanced against one another. I think even having a separate term for tier 5U is a case of over-systemizing and trying to squeeze more out of players. All they really had to do was just call it all tier 6 and give the retrofits a single generic 5th mastery tier starship trait while the intel ships get unique ones. We brought this up a little bit with Phil Gorn-Gonzola-Zaleski about if they reined back the whole trait system, 
to be limited to four. Now we're being introduced to all these tier ship upgrades. I mean, what if Star Trek Online lasts another four years? Hopefully it does. And then we need tier seven ships. What's going to happen then? The same thing. But it'll probably be in two years because it's been every two years it seems like if they've been. Well, Captains, we continue to receive awesome, phenomenal game ideas. But unfortunately, with the length of the show this week, we're going to have to forego it again this week. But keep them coming. Just visit PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash game ideas and share with us your thoughts on improving Star Trek Online. At the end of the month, so at the end of September, we're going to be compiling everything and I'll send it over to our friends over at Cryptic Studios and Perfect World Entertainment to review just like Brandon used to do way back in the day. But we want to remind you that each week our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, your opinions, and suggestions for the show. So please keep them coming. Reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at STO priority one. You can also shoot us an email to incoming at priority one podcast.com. Well, captains, that wraps up episode 191 of Priority One Podcast. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catcher to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com or by visiting priorityonepodcast.com. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community question in the comment section on our site or on the Star Trek online forum post for this episode. Remember, this week's question is, what are you looking forward to in the new Delta Rising reputation system? Be sure to let us know your thoughts on that by staying in touch with us via our social media websites, you can head over to facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast. You can give us a like while you're there, or you can check us out on Twitter via at STO priority one. And if you haven't already, be sure to join our public priority one chat channel in game. All you have to do is type forward slash channel underscore join spacebar priority one. Captains, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of priority one podcast. Without your ongoing support, we would not be able to bring you the content you've grown to enjoy from Priority One Podcast. And don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. It's a pretty, it's a decent show. You should check it out. (laughs) Oh my God. The Priority One Fleet is recruiting. If you're interested in joining, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. And now you can join our Klingon Fleet Division, Warriors of Priority One. Join today! A very special thanks to the team behind Enterprise in Space and to the lead designer of Star Trek Online, Al Captain Gecko Rivera. And to systems designer Phil Gorgonzola Zaleski. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast, including our audio engineers Skiffy and Ben Churchill. And of course, to QA support staffer Midnight Shadow Seven for lending his support this week in editing the show. Thanks to our graphic artist Romulan Ale, and to all our bloggers and their managing editor L. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Epic Gamer Radio, Subspace Radio, and of course, Trek Radio. But most importantly, Captains, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek online community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. Engage.
Transfer complete. Oop, I think I got it. There's no punctuation, nothing. That's just the way that it was. Okay, so let's let's clear up job descriptions here. Um, one of the job <laughs> responsibilities. No, I, it makes sense to me. In so you read this. Okay, fine. Okay, what did you say? <laughs> oh my God, Elijah is drunk. <laughs> no, I'm not drunk. Drunk, drunky, drunk, drunk. I want a Borg dog. Can I get a Borg dog? Mm. What a cat. Rough, rough, rough. Meow, meow, meow. <laughs> a bog. It would be a bog. Bork. <laughs> bork. 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 <laughs> you sound so drunk. I'm not drunk. All right, but fine. you sound it. You're slurring. <laughs> And you're just like, you're super, you're That's what you said. Oh, God. All right. Okay. Whatever. What was that? Subdetection carrier? <laughs> subnuclear. Subnuclear. I'm not drunk. Can't tell me I'm drunk. Give me the keys. Brian, give me the, Brian, give me the keys. Give me the keys, Brian. Brian. Hold on. I have to fix my bangs. Oh, where's my lip balm? My lips are dry. My lip balm is gone. Oh, there it is. Found it. Ah, oh, yeah, that's good. Mm. You can also shoot us an email to incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. I clanged my teeth real hard on that one. Aw. should drink less. I'm just kidding. I'm going to hit stop in three, two. Why do we have to count down the stop? They had a goal of cohesion between the ships and a goal to, to fuse and blend originality with familiar... Originality with familiar... Familiar... Familiarity. 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 Familiar... Familiar. Originality. Originality. Originality and familiarity. I wonder if you uh, if that works in conjunction with the snow boots, because then you're just like Ooh, you're the Flash. Yeah. Zoom, zoom. Why is my video recording on? Is someone watching me? Video recording? Yes, my 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 video is on right now. How my is your video on? on. You Where? know the camera light that comes on. When the camera is on on the computer, it's well, on right now. That's creepy. I don't know. What do you want me to, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what to do. So put a little piece of tape over it or something. Okay, but they can still hear me, can't they? I don't know. I don't know who's they. Who's they? I don't know either. <laughs> Yay! Dun, dun, dun. <laughs>